Today's scripture reading is from Zephaniah 3, verses 14 through 20. Please read with me the verses in bold. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Daniel. Uh, thank you for the prayers and thank you for the appreciation. And I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what we would say. Just uh, we feel honored and appreciated. And I know we feel loved. I know uh, I can say that uh, for the both of us, we feel extremely loved by the congregation and we feel uh, the same with our elders. And so just real thankful to be uh, with, just thankful to be here and thankful to be worshiping together with you this morning. In uh, 1947, just after World War II, the members of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists created what we know as the Doomsday Clock, a metaphor of how close we are to destroying our world. Using the markers of political tensions, atomic weapons, technology, climate change, or even a pandemic illness. The end of the world is represented by midnight on the clock. At the time of its creation in 1947, the clock read that we were seven minutes till midnight. But as of January 24th, 2023, we are at its nearest, at 90 seconds to midnight. The clock suggests that destruction will occur unless someone takes action to stop it. Depending on your sense of humor, when you hear that there are only 90 metaphorical seconds on the clock to midnight. It sounds like a really cool concept for a TV show. 
or a video game, or you're thrown into a fit of terror as you think about this global catastrophe. Well, the book of Zephaniah kind of reads like this. 90 seconds till midnight, a prophecy of the coming punishment, what he calls the day of the Lord. Not new, it's repeated in other minor prophets, but the day of the Lord will be a day of great wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of uh, trouble and gloom, a day of uh, clouds and darkness. I mean, listen to the opening lines of this prophetic word in chapter 1 of Zephaniah. He writes, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord, is how Zephaniah begins. It's eerily similar to the account that we see in the book of Genesis when God tells Noah in the flood account the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I mean, eerily similar between Genesis chapter 6 and Zephaniah chapter 1. Nearly 2,000 years separate these two accounts in the first book of the Bible and almost the last one in the Old Testament. Perhaps if the Genesis account feels more like seven minutes till midnight then Zephaniah reads more like 90 seconds. Just a few observations, if I can. Looking at these two narratives, one, Zephaniah includes the... It's strange. When you read through these two different accounts, you see Zephaniah include fish that the Genesis account does not. And I think for obvious reasons, because there's a flood. <laughs> I think for obvious reasons. Again, number two, I think the flood account occurs in Genesis 6, only five chapters removed from the beginning of creation. Genesis chapter 1 says, and God created the heavens and the earth. And then by chapter 6, he is about to annihilate every living thing on the face of the planet. Number three, between Zephaniah's prophecy and today, 2023, more than 2,000 years have passed, more like 2,500 years have passed since Zephaniah's prophecy in chapter 1 and 2023. So what gives? Well, if you're just joining us, or if you're just joining us recently, we are in the middle of a sermon series on the Minor Prophets, 12 short little books that close out the Old Testament before the coming of Christ in the New. 
These are difficult books, both to understand as well as to hear, because these prophecies are dark, they're bleak, the outlook is hopeless. Sometimes I forget why Brad and I chose a sermon series on the minor prophets, because they are weighty books. I think I will remember why we chose this sermon series at the end of the sermon. But not much is known about Zephaniah the prophet, much like the other 11. What Zephaniah does that the other prophets do not do is give us four generations of ancestry. His father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and then his great-great-grandfather. No other writer does this, but Zephaniah seems to give us the credentials, right? His credentials as a prophet. He says, I'm the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. And again, those names may not mean much to you. But he's giving us his credentials. I think two things in particular. One, he's telling us four generations ago was my father, uh, great-great-grandfather, the great king Hezekiah. He says, secondly, he's serving under the, the kingship of, of Josiah and tells us that, again, Josiah was king when he served as a prophet in those days. And again, that may be important or not important to you, but he's giving us the context of his years of ministry as a prophet. Just a real quick story. Josiah, when he took over as king, was only eight years old. Eight years old when Josiah became king, and that time when Zephaniah was a prophet in that reign. We know that Josiah, the king, his father was evil, and his grandfather was evil, and Josiah, in his 18th year of reign, so I guess at 26 years of age, he brings about reform and says, let's come back to the Lord. And perhaps Zephaniah was instrumental in bringing Judah and Israel back to the ways of the Lord. So just, again, some context. But again, as you know, the history of Israel, as you read through the Old Testament, you know that they go through these cycles. And so by the time that Josiah, the good king, passes away, guess what? They go back to their evil ways. Many of his reforms were short-lived. They are rolled back. And that's where we find ourselves in Zephaniah's prophecy and the imminent judgment of God, both on Judah and the surrounding nations. The book of Zephaniah is really simple. It's three chapters long, and there's just one message. Just one prevailing topic that dictates the book. It's the vision of world disaster. <laughs> A how soon to the end of the world type message. A doomsday clock, 90 seconds to midnight. There have been many a movie depicting this catastrophic end to the world as we know it. But as simple as the theme or the prevailing topic of the book of Zephaniah, the coming day of the Lord, 
Zephaniah is very vague and too general to be helpful. He announces judgments on nations and an abolishment of everything without being overly specific. Many scholars criticize that Zephaniah is too dull and too unoriginal and not as poetic as Isaiah or Hosea. He's unoriginal in that he copies Joel and Amos. He uses their theme of the day of the Lord and includes it in his prevailing theme in the book of Zephaniah. So all that to say, Zephaniah is not original. But here's the key to understanding Zephaniah. If to see Zephaniah, again, to see, if to see his work, his three chapters as the summation of the previous eight minor prophets. Now, if you think he's dull, if you think Zephaniah is unoriginal, it's because he's summarizing, he's concluding the last eight books of the minor prophets. Zephaniah is the last, the ninth one, the ninth minor prophet For he summarizes the announcement of condemnation of God's rebellious people in Hosea, right? Again, if you think about it, God is condemning his own people for their sins against God in the books of Hosea, in the book of Joel, in the book of Amos, in the book of Micah. But he doesn't leave out the other nations, the surrounding nations. He confirms the Lord's judgment on those who plundered and took advantage of God's people, a key theme in the book of Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk. And if you want to count Jonah, you can count that as well as he condemns Nineveh as well. So nine books. And Zephaniah summarizes the minor prophets and repeats everything that the other eight have been saying all along. And we'll have three more left, 10, 11, and 12. Haggai, Zechariah, and the Italian prophet, Malachi, or Malachi, right? (laughs) Just kidding. And those three books focus on the Jews returned to Judah from exile, but the previous nine focus on the time before the exile to Babylon. So the real question is, what have they done, right? What have the people done to receive this great punishment, this coming day of the Lord, this 90 seconds to midnight? Well, Judah, he starts there. The people of God, He begins by addressing idolatry, particularly the the worship of Baal, the worship of the stars, the worship of Molech. They had adopted the gods of foreign nations. Many of of those who are implicated in Zephaniah's prophecy were the people who held influential positions in society. They were officials, members of royal family. They were priests. They were idolatrous priests who had brought these gods into the temple. Listen to uh, to verse 4 of chapter 1. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests 
Those who bow down on the roofs and the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord, inquire of them. What's facilitating, uh, I'm sorry, what's fascinating is that Zephaniah points out that it's not because they weren't worshiping God, but they were worshiping God plus. They were worshiping God and. You see, they loved God, but they loved others, and they loved other things. The thing with Judah is that they wanted their security. They wanted God and other securities as well. They worshiped both God and God's. They had a way of of covering their bases and saying, I want to love God, but I also want to love these other things too. Zephaniah also points out concerns of injustice and corruption in the marketplace and among the merchants. They often strip the poor of possessions and use their power to take advantage for their own benefit. There were corrupt political systems and corrupt courts. Zephaniah writes, Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for the traitors are no more, all who weigh out silver and cut off. So God pronounces judgment on Judah. But it does not exclude the nations, not just Judah. The nations will not be exempt from punishment for their wrongdoing. Zephaniah addresses the Philistines to the west. He condemns the nations to the east, Moab and Ammon. He turns southward to Cush and Egypt. And the longest section is reserved for the neighbors of the north, Assyria, and their capital, Nineveh. So if you look at the geography that Zephaniah points out, he's referring to all nations surrounding Israel, all the nations that encompass Judah. And he says, they will be abolished. The north, the south, the west, and the east will all be judged by God. The enemies of Judah will all face the penalty for their sins, is what Zephaniah says. Let me just sh share three things that prophecies are not. And again, I'll just share very simply. One, prophecies are not a prediction. They're not a prediction. I'm not here to predict for you the timing of the end of the world. Too many others have already done that and failed. Prophecies are not just predictions about the future. That's not how prophecy works. Prophecies are not to be date-setting opportunities for us to figure out when Jesus will come back. For there are numerous passages, I could think of at least eight that, again, specifically warn against date setting, trying to figure out as we align the stars when Jesus Christ will return for her bride. Prophecies are not just a prediction, but they are not intended just to scare. 
The point of Zephaniah's message is not just to terrify his readers. You're not supposed to just read this and be scared to salvation, right? I mean, the thing about our faith and the thing about what we believe is that God calls us to repentance because of his kindness, the text tells us. They're not just to scare us out of our shoes and scare us into believing. I don't think that these messages are supposed to be a killjoy. I think, again, when we thought of our sermon series, we weren't just thinking about, hey, how can we depress our congregation the best way possible? What can we do to let, let everyone leave this place just utterly discouraged and looking at the, uh, the world events and, and hopeless? You know, the Minor Prophets are probably the most overlooked books of the whole Bible. But these books contain some, some weighty messages and point us, I think, to an either, even greater hope. They paint a picture of God's hatred of sin, his great love for his people, and his determination to do all that's needed to make things right. Let me pause here for just a moment and say, no matter what you believe about the Bible, no matter what you believe about God, to be sure, there is a deep impulse in every human heart that resonates with the prophet's concern. We're all faced with the fact that the world is not as it should be. I'm sure all of us can say that. Just read the headlines and your heart aches. My heart aches. Unpunished evil exists that cries out for a just reckoning, both in our country and in our world. We abhor injustices. We hate that there's abuses to the weak and the helpless. We agree that serious evil has been committed and someone ought to pay for it. That's why we have courts, we have judges, we have systems to right wrongs. On some level, we all want to see a day when justice will finally be done, when the evil and wicked finally receive their due punishment. And we all long for that day, don't we? We all long for a day when, when evil will not go unpunished. We all long for that. When evil and wickedness finally receive their due punishment. Ephaniah says in verse 13 of chapter 3, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. Zephaniah is pointing, pointing us to a greater hope and saying there is a day that's coming. It's called the day of the Lord. A day of the Lord where God will balance the scales. Those who do wrong will not go unpunished. It says there will be no injustice. 
and there'll be no one who speaks lies. Justice will be served. And again, I think you and I sit here and we all long for that. We all want that. We desire that. This ancient passage of Scripture speaks to us as we find ourselves faced with the dire scenarios of injustice and pain in the world. Sometimes, 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 those injustices are done to us. Or something that's been done to us, and we long for justice to be done. We're the ones who have been hurt. We're the ones who have been oppressed, perhaps by those who should have protected us. Zephaniah mentions judges and officials. Perhaps uh, we think about in our own culture and society, policemen and lawmakers. And as sad as it is, pastors and teachers and religious leaders. And my friends, if you've been hurt by one of those, I'm sorry. But can you imagine that those who are to protect the most vulnerable, help the helpless, bring refuge to the weak, or the ones who are abusing their power and abusing their influence. And perhaps they were thinking, God, where are you? When that happens, we might think that God, too, is absent and against us and doesn't really care about us or care about what's right and wrong, that he has abandoned us, that he has left us to fend for ourselves. We're in the ninth minor prophet, and it's been oppressive. The repeated messages of coming judgment, any attempt to understand it and apply it can leave a person utterly depressed. And Zephaniah is no different. The thing is, no matter how depressing the message of judgment in the minor prophets becomes, it never becomes the final word. And the Bible as a whole is like that. Many of the books end depressingly. The book of Genesis ends, so Joseph died. <laughs> at the ripe old age, and again, it doesn't say ripe old age. It says at age, age of 110. The Old Testament concludes with the words, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, and we'll get there. But these are not ultimate words. They are only the penultimate words. Whereas the Bible ends, Revelation chapter 22, the very last book of the Bible, 
Jesus says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And he writes the grace of the very last verse of the Bible, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The thing I love about Zephaniah, and no matter what you believe about God or the Bible, is that it tells us that justice will be served. The point of Zephaniah's message number two is not just to terrify his hearers. He was not only, uh, he was not only uh, writing to condemn them for their sins, but urging them to flee the wrath that was to come and find a safe refuge from the storm while there was still time. The message of Zephaniah was not just to scare them senseless, but to save them. Look at verse 12. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Whatever you believe about the wrath of God, it is a judgment of God that our sins deserved. Not just because he's vengeful, not just because he loves violence and is punitive. For this is just an antiquated, right? Again, if you see it, see God that way, this is just an antiquated view of God. For you see, the wrath of God is God's answer to injustice. It's God's answer, answer to injustice. The wrath of God is punishment for wrongdoing. And so because our sins deserve the wrath of God, what does God do? After you have contemplated the awful judgment day, the day of the Lord, Zephaniah the prophet tells us to run. Like any good horror movie on Halloween, run. Run. Zephaniah says, flee. Flee to the only refuge that will endure the future day of God's wrath. To the shelter that God himself has provided for us. Run there. In the ninth minor prophet, as it has been repeated and oppressive, any Application of this can leave a person utterly depressed. But the thing is, no matter how depressing the message of judgment in the minor prophets becomes, it is never the final word of God to God's people. Many of the books end this way, but God says, I will provide a refuge for you. Zephaniah says, seek the Lord. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger is the one that we might need to take to heart today as we hear this word. Find refuge. Find refuge in Christ. 
find refuge in Christ on a cross where the wrath of God, again, if you know the character of the holiness of God, again, both the ideas of justice and mercy are found there at the cross where Jesus Christ, in his mercy, in God's mercy, pours out his wrath, not on us, but on Christ. And so Zephaniah the prophet says, you can find safe refuge there. As you find yourself at the foot of the cross, you will find a refuge, a safe place from the wrath of God for the sins, the deserved sins of our doing. Lastly, and I'll finish with this real quickly. In Zephaniah, the encouragement comes in the last 12 verses. This is not how we typically think about God, but Zephaniah considers uh, and paints this picture of God as one who sings over us, who delights in us, who is eagerly at work in your life, who comes to strengthen you when you are weak, who comes to pick you up after you fall, who works good and ill together in your life for your good and for his glory. And I love this picture. And again, if you ever find yourself in those places where you need strengthening, find yourself in Zephaniah chapter 3 where God sings over you. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival that you will no longer suffer reproach. And what the prophet does for us is he tells us that there's a new day dawning. There's a brand new day coming. A brand new day. Those who will gather together, the remnant, those whom he loves and delights and rejoices over, that day is coming. But in order for him to do that, as I mentioned, Christ had to go to a cross and bear our sins so that we would not have to.